welcome to Into the Bytecode. Today I sat down with Vitalik Buterin, who, as you probably know, is the creator of Ethereum, and Carl Florsch, a longtime researcher in the space who's now working on optimism, the layer two optimistic rollup. We started the conversation by talking about retroactive public goods funding, which is a pretty compelling idea that Vitalik and Carl shared earlier this year. And then we moved on to talking about topics like decoupling value creation and value capture, the sustainability of public goods, Ether's Phoenix, which is a play on Ruko's Basilisk, the thought experiment that originated in the Lesseron community. And we talked about governance models and how they lie somewhere on the continuum from being exclusionary to being conformist. Towards the end of the conversation, we briefly riffed on personal tokens and new social network designs, and I thought this was really fun. So without further ado, let's jump into it. I think maybe let's just start by talking about the high-level idea and what retroactive public goods funding is. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with it, but do either of you want to want to kind of provide the brush strokes of what we're talking about here? Um, sure. So the basic um, idea of a retroactive public goods funding is that within a regular public goods funding, you figure out, look for projects ahead of time and you try to determine ahead of time which kinds of projects are going to be uh, likely to be useful go uh, by some metric or some voter, some kind of governance or whatever. And then you give money to those projects and hopefully the yeah, projects will do what people expect them to do and come up with a result. Retroactive public goods funding says to fund projects after they've already accomplished uh, some outcome. Uh, so like, for example, if someone um, it comes up with a yeah, better zero knowledge proof protocol, like you, you know, give them some funding after they've uh, already released them, um, you know, the paper and, or um, an implementation of someone that comes up with a yeah, new and better Ethereum clients, then, you know, just to give them a bounty for that after they've done it. Um, and this is usually coupled with a mechanism where in order for projects to get funding to actually start their work ahead of time, there's basically there's some way to uh, kind of invest into these projects where that investment is actually backed by the possibility of getting a share of the grant if the thing that you put your money into ends up actually succeeding right and like this so basic like this could be done in a lot of ways so like for example you could just say when you issue a retroactive grant you also um, give a reward to everyone who helped fund the project, and you do that, and you do it as a kind of uh, haphazard or kind of direct, like direct person by person thing. Uh, there's also this uh, concept of project tokens, where a project can just sell tokens, and uh, people can buy tokens, and then these uh, tokens are backed by the possibility of a retroactive grant buying up the tokens. Uh, so. There's a lot of different ways to do that, right? But the point is basically that like the uh, the proactive funding mechanism is also kind of simultaneously a prediction market, right? In that if you proactively fund things that actually do end up succeeding and getting retroactive grants, then you know you win, you win and you prosper and you get, and you have more money. But if you proactively fund things that never go anywhere, then like you, you don't uh, win any money, right? So it's basically. A, kind of bringing startup VC ecosystem style um, alignment of uh, incentives and rewards for making good predictions into the world of funding public goods. Right. So where today, um, if you're, you know, if you're building a public good project or you're building an open source project, you have to go to one of these grants programs and it's just a totally different um, it's a different set of incentives that the people operating those programs have. It, it, um, it actually, I hadn't made this connection before, but it makes me think of this uh, post that Alex Danko had written about how in Canada, you can apply for a lot of government tax credits as a startup. And the process of going through that bureaucracy can actually be net detrimental for, for the startup mm -hmm. trying to fit itself into this, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, what's the saying, square peg in a round hole. And um, whereas, you know, a 
they're just totally different ways of operating where a investor is attuned to high risk reward um, type bets of like looking into the future. Um, is that is that part of why you think this this makes sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> I think uh, in general, it's uh, harder to judge um, the like future possibility of things succeeding than it is to judge whether or not something already has succeeded. And one of the key things that we want to do here is to basically like provide a pathway for projects to be able to get funding and succeed, even if at the beginning they can't actually convince a you know, kind of majority of, uh, of people or even a majority of whatever the funding mechanism is that they're right, right? So, you know, if you have a team and no one trusts you because, um, you know, either you're um, doing some completely new approach that nobody trusts or like, let's say uh, people are suspicious of you, uh, of your team because of your backgrounds or something, something, um, but then, you know, you end up proving someone else right, then like there, there's more, it's, it's much clearer that you are right after you actually already, yeah, already succeeded. And so like, you don't need to have this process of like, you know, the committee judging people all the way at the beginning when no one has any information. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I can just give a little bit of, uh, you know, story behind this, like, this is not some Stories theoretical, you know, yeah. this is not some theoretical magical thing that we're like trying to solve a problem for. No, this is like an actual problem that, um, you know, I and people that I, you know, chilled with have actually experienced. So um, that I was working on a project called Plasma Group and Plasma Group was a nonprofit um, and we essentially were, Plasma Group's mission was to scale Ethereum, right? It's like use layer two and scale Ethereum. And we spent a lot of time trying to get grant funding, trying to go through this process to get enough resources and enough people to, you know, uh, basically invest in us and, get, you know, push this future forward. And it's very clear, like Ethereum obviously needs to scale. But what we were building was, you know, obviously everything is, you know, open source and a public good. And specifically the way that we were structuring the, the company was a nonprofit, which meant that there's like no shares, no upside, you know, you are literally just asking for grants. And there are like a bunch of problems with grants. One of them is like, okay, if, if you get, a, if one person gives you a grant, then another grant program might be like, oh, they're actually, they're, they're, they're fine. They don't need the, they don't need the, the money. Or, you know, you end up raising something like not over a million dollars, probably less than a hundred thousand right. dollars. It's, it's totally different than in the, in the VC funding dynamic, where if you're, if you successfully manage to get money from someone, it actually increases the incentives for everyone else where they're trying to get into the round as well. Exactly. So this is like the most, it's just a kind of broken mechanism for fundraising. And the problem is that we need to fundraise to create the public goods that are going to build and further the protocol, namely Ethereum. So then we're like, okay, well, if we can't do a nonprofit, then I guess we need to do some kind of for-profit entity. But thankfully there is a public benefit corporation, which you know, allows you to, to find a charter so we can maintain fully open source and be enshrining fair access to public goods. And like, that's an okay vehicle and you know, to get some, some funding. And so we got some venture funding for that. And that was enough for us to actually build out the team and you know, deliver on scaling Ethereum. But the reality is that that is not a like long-term sustainable, you know, vision for funding public goods. Like that works in an industry that there's like a lot of hype for um, and that where there's, you know, people believe that there can be some profit, you know, motive somewhere. But the question is, okay, we don't, like this was a last resort for us. So mm. we don't want to do that. We want to be able to raise money on being able to provide utility for everyone, like give people what right. they want and build public goods, right? We want to convince them we can build something really great and that should be enough to get the funding. Um, and so 
uh, that's why it's like this idea of, you know, building out a system that would give open source projects an exit, which then incentivizes VC-like entities to invest and avoid that weird, you know, bad incentive of grants programs. Yeah. That is just so appealing. How do you think about the question of sustainability? Because that's one thing that's come up, you know, as I've been a part of the EF's grants making operations. And, um, you know, let's take the case of layer twos and say, you know, state channels a couple of years ago, where the Ethereum Foundation was, was, you know, supporting these efforts broadly across the board. But one of the questions that was always there was, okay, like this can be done for two years, four years, six years into the future, but hopefully there is a way for these projects to become self-sustaining. And if there is, if, if the project internally has a business model where it can capture value, that can become an engine that helps it propel itself into the future, right? And, and with this model where we're talking about, that doesn't necessarily exist yet either. So how do you think about that question? So I think that there are two key things that we need to solve for. First, we need to build mechanisms that are very understood that extract value for the protocol. The protocol being the most general form. This can be any protocol. It can be, you know, blockchains. It can be, you know, things on top of blockchains, layer two, layer three, all these things. We need to build systems and build them well that in where they can fairly extract value and then repurpose that value towards funding public goods. Now, of course, the thing that I think I'm most excited about with regards to sources of funding, it's MEV, right? So it is, we want to minimize MEV as much as we possibly can, but there still exists some value that is fundamental, transaction fees, priority transaction fees specifically. And so that is a very, that is a clear source of like fundamental value that should not go to the highest bidder. It should go back to the community. There's probably a number of those sorts of mechanisms, but now notably that's only one side of the story because that mechanism should be governed responsibly and used to fund public goods that don't have a value extraction mechanism so that we can decouple value creation from value extraction. Right. Like there, there are a certain set of things that have a very broad footprint in the ecosystem. Let's say just transactions on the Ethereum mainnet. And now, you know, the EIP 1559 burn being a way of, uh, you know, capturing that value for the ecosystem or in the case of optimism, there being some, you know, sequencer auctions potentially. And so using, um, using those as kind of a umbrella external source of value that then gets funneled into these public goods projects under, um, under its umbrella. Yep, I think uh, like one other way of thinking about it is that it's uh, really important to uh, be able to decouple uh, public good value from uh, ability to get a business model. Like basically, if you rely on a model that assumes that every project is kind of supporting itself independently, then the value of every project is going to be yeah, dependent on, like be, or every project's ability to get funding is going to be dependent on this possibility that it gets a business model at some point in the future. And now you could argue that like, oh, you know, theoretically, like anything can happen with anything. And look, we thought Uniswap was a pure public good. And it turns out they could just like pump out a coin and uh, Muno Paradigm got uh, very happy off of that. But uh, the uh, like, that's not something that we can really sustainably rely on in the long term, right? Like in the like, especially once uh, the, the the space and fu- and funding becomes more competitive. Like it, there's right. a lot of like like people aren't going to just be saying like, oh, look at Uniswap. Therefore, anything can happen with anything, and so therefore, let's invest in the fluffy stuff and for magic. They're going to like <laughs> uh, like at some points, you know, we we. Uh, there are going to be a lot of things that either just have no chance in hell of uh, becoming very big multi-million dollar things. Like for example, software libraries, like do- documentation, writing, um, 
a lot of different things, right? Um, yeah. Basic research and, or you don't want teams to be, to feel forced to spend a lot of their time, uh, like instead of working on the thing that they're best at, instead trying to figure out how to like sneak a business model into whatever they're doing. And so, you know, you want to decouple, right? Like we want, like there are going to be naturally projects whose value extraction um, opportunity exceeds the, or in way exceeds the yeah, value and well, the either value that they provide or just the, or, or even just the amount of funding that they yeah, realistically need to get more, uh, to uh, create more value. And then there's also going to be a lot of projects whose uh, value, ability to extract value is uh, far below what they, you know, what they actually need to develop and, and far below the yeah, public good value that they could provide. And so yeah. like what you want to do is just kind of like, can like, basically get you know match make and uh, have the things that can um, extract value and preferably like a small number of a kind of high value durable things that can uh, extract value um, fund the uh, rest of the ecosystem that can't do it on its own yeah yeah I totally agree with the first part of what you're what you were saying of uh, you can't expect every public good to chance upon a business model um, because that's like almost the definition of a public good is that you can't capture value, right? That's that's the whole thing. You can't exclude people from using it. Therefore, you can't mm -hmm. charge them for the for that privilege. Um, and then the later part of what you said um, makes you know it's there's something unique here where it it requires there to be groups that are taking the macro perspective in mind and. You know they're not optimizing for their own um, for their own narrow self-interest, right? Which is like every other agent in this system is basically trying to maximize its own profits. But then you're saying that there are people here, there are organizations that are taking the macro perspective and and trying to match make and foregoing their own profits and giving it to other people. Um, I think. Uh... This, the sacrifice that those teams are making is actually smaller than uh, you're implying. Uh, because if a uh, project like clearly puts its stake down and says, you know, we're not just there for the benefit of our investors and our team. This is uh, something that's a uh, public good for the ecosystem. Then lots of people in the ecosystem are going to be much more willing to support them. They're going to be much more excited about integrating with their platform. They're going to be much more willing to provide like all kinds of free labor for it, whether it's, uh, you know, helping people out on forums or what, uh, participating in discussions or whatever it is. And so there's a lot of uh, this kind of like very warm, fluffy social dark matter that you can uh, tap into. I think, uh, you know, only if you actually can uh, convince people that like you're trying to benefit the wider ecosystem and not just yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the soft rather than the hard stuff. And there, there can also be, especially in an ecosystem where we're, you know, relatively speaking pretty early, it can be a form of enlightened self-interest of through like giving X percent of my profits to the ecosystem, the whole thing is going to grow. And so I'm going to, even if I'm basically being selfish, I'll still end up being more profitable in the long run. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that this is a very important point and sticking point and thing to think about. At least I want to, you know, think about it and really like understand it because in some sense, it comes down to everyone's choice. So I think that we are in, okay, I'm going to just, I'll just like un. I'll just be a little alarmist and silly, you know? So take me with a grain of salt, but I'll still do it. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'll make the claim that imagine we are in this moment in time where human beings still have a solid amount of bargaining rights, where we're like, we, you know, we have like, at least we've created this new crypto thing and a bunch of people, you know, got wealthy. And now there's like, you know, some kind of decentralized value and people actually have like, pretty good say about where they are uh you know where they're where they're headed and we haven't created structures that are like really you know systems of control yet we haven't like created the walled garden 
of blockchains yet. So I think that this is a really important moment for us as blockchain users and like, you know, builders of the future to choose projects and choose systems that do promote our self-interest, just like, I mean, our, our collective interest, just like Vitalik was saying, like that, that warm and fuzzy, like, I think that it's, it's, it's warm and fuzzy. And I think it's out there. It's this like dark matter that you can't really see, but definitely exists. But at the same time, we have to enforce that dark matter and make sure that we all like unify behind it. Because this is a great moment where we can say, okay, we are going to choose projects that support public goods over projects that are, you know, purely self-interested building private goods. Yeah. It makes me think of one thing you said in your HCC talk, which I was watching earlier, where you called it Ether's Phoenix, right? And I really liked that of, um, uh, of I mean, you, you can do a better job explaining it instead of me <laughs> stumbling on myself. <laughs> okay, I'll try. So, so I don't know, you're not supposed to talk about Roko or Ruko's uh, Basilisk. anyone who hears it is basically cursed. But we have, we have the uh, reverse curse. So now we can start talking about it. Um, so basically Roko's Basilisk is, okay, if, if the, the evil super intelligent AI is in the future, then if you don't help it come into existence, then it's gonna you know, hurt you. It's gonna punish you. It's gonna kill you, whatever. And so you have that, that's the, that's the draw to the tragedy of the commons. That's like us, we're like defecting. We're like, oh, we have to like create this evil system that's gonna control us. And you know, it's, it's, it's gonna be, that's, that's Ruko's Basilisk. And then at the, on the other hand, this is an iterative game, right? This is a, tra this is a prisoner's dilemma that is happening over you know, many times. So we know that the Nash equilibrium in this iterative, iterative game is let's cooperate. Let's actually do, you know, let's work together. So Ether's Phoenix is this idea and it actually works really well with public goods funding because it gives uh, retroactive public goods funding because it gives retroactive public goods funding a bit of a salvation story. Because it says, well, the sooner you are to collaborate and build for the public good and work towards this like collaborative future, well, that's a really important public good that you're, you know, good that you are providing. And that's kind of, you know, the earlier you do, you do that, the more value you should be receiving in the future because the future, we're trying to like create this little like draw, this, uh, what is the, you know, attractor in the future to this like cooperative land. And so the sooner we, you know, we should be rewarding the people who help us get there. And so we can actually all start like collab uh, 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 you know, collaborating and not defecting. And the sooner we do it, the more we'll be rewarded. So it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you do good, then you go to heaven. And we can all, I, I think it's actually legit. I yeah. actually think it is. Yeah, I, I think so too. Like if you're, as you're kind of uh, crawling back the graph of contributions of everyone who's helped, you know, some current public good that the world is enjoying, if you happen to be one of the root nodes 30 years ago and you happen to be alive to enjoy the rewards that are going to be given to you, that's a very positive thing. And I feel like to some extent it already happens, like, like especially inside of Ethereum where, um, you know, people who have been doing good things for the ecosystem with no expectation or desire for, for being rewarded. I mean, one person is, say, Austin Griffith, who's just helped a ton of developers get into Ethereum. And, you know, he's like, gets like random airdrops because projects just appreciate him and, and want him to help. Uh, so it's, it's cool seeing that in action. Um, I wonder, this, this does make me th kind of have one question though, which is um, there is a difference between someone working on a public good because they, you know, because they, they're drawn to doing that work versus doing it with the expectation of profit, right? And, um, and even, you know, when we're, you know, again, from the, from the perspective of the Ethereum Foundation, when I've thought about public goods, there's like kind of, you know, two amongst probably other ways of approaching it. One is through setting, you know, through just like 
making people realize that this is something they want to do, right? Through setting the cultural norms and, and the vibes in the space of, no, it's good to give back. And, you know, say something like Gitcoin grants is that, right? Uh, a, a distillation of it. There's no, there's no profit motive in there. You're giving to these projects because you want to support them. Um, but then, you know, a part of me also thinks that, like, I think, Carl, you, you say, which is that's not, that's not going to scale. That's not truly sustainable. And so the other path is how do you take things that are public goods and kind of try to inject the market-based, you know, profit-seeking dynamic into them um, with the least amount of loss possible of like the true kind of genuine thing that's going on and help them grow um, using that engine. Yeah, I, I think uh, like having that component is definitely important, right? Because uh, the set of people who can do the uh, good work that needs to be done on these uh, public goods, especially in the early stages, like it definitely does not overlap perfectly with the set of people that are willing to uh, kind of sit back and hope that uh, that you know the, the the phoenix is kind to them five years in the future and so you know, like this is uh, a big like the, the, this is the motivation behind just the like investments in general right so like if uh, someone is willing to go ahead and just fund a project in the early stage and pay those expenses like that's also a type of contribution it's a type of contribution that you know if it right if the project turns out to be yeah, really important should be rewarded too Right. So you're saying that investors even are kind of doing a service within mm -hmm. the system. They definitely are. What are um, like there is a coordination game here, too, of people need to kind of know that the, the, the funding is going the exit is going to be there at the end. Um, mm -hmm. What is the order of operations here for actually getting getting this thing to work? I guess um, like spin up a DAO and uh, figure out like exactly what the governance mechanism is and actually like launch the first version of the thing and actually yeah, connect a, yeah, a stream of funding to it of some kind. Uh, so people can be confident that, hey, this is uh, something that exists. Um, I personally think that like the, the DAO should just start handing out retroactive grants immediately just so that people can see like, how the governance works um so and um people can see that it works people can see like what kind of outputs it has and just verify that the outputs are reasonable and then once it's just is people see that there is a pattern and that there is continuity for some period of time there's just going to be more and more confidence that it'll continue to exist going forward mm. yeah and the, the funding, I mean, the funding can also come from anywhere, right? Like it, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't even need to come from a continuous source to start. Like these are different, these mm -hmm. can be decoupled this is as true. well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I think uh, like the, the possibilities that we have in the crypto space, um, aside from like individual and institutional donations, because we, like, we have those already, are um, one is uh, a stream of funding. So like uh, some percentage of transaction fees or MEV would be one example. Um, another is issuance of from uh, buying new coins, right? Like new coins that are launching do have this problem that they needs to have some kind of initial issuance and that initial issuance has to go somewhere. So hmm. why not have it go to a yeah, credibly neutral pool of uh, com community contributors? Um, so a third um, would be, uh, let's see, what are the uh, other options? Well, there's ongoing coin issuance, there's new coin issuance. Well, you, you can sell NFTs, obviously. Um, I mean, who, who wouldn't love to have, um, you know, the uh, NFTs, um, you know, you can, you can give them fancy names like in World of Warcraft, like Scale of Ethers Phoenix. Um, <laughs> you know, collect here, collect all 10 of them. You know, you got your red scale of Ethers Phoenix, you got your prismatic scale of Ethers Phoenix. <laughs> no, no, pr prismatic is what you get when you combine red, green, and blue together or something, right? Ah, like you can make a whole, nice. yeah, you can make a whole game out of it. Um, hmm. <laughs> right. Um, 
what is the status of this? Carl, is this something that Optimism is thinking of building or you guys are working on or? We have a thousand and one things that we need to do, <laughs> but indeed yeah. this is something that we are thinking of building in a very vague sense that is uh, more amorphous than morphous. Um, but uh, generally it is definitely real. The specific thing that is most real is that um, all you know profits that uh, are made when we run the sequencer. So we, okay, so a little background, we have a, a deployment of a optimistic rollup and we, uh, you know, there are transaction fees on that network and some of those transaction fees go to the sequencer. And so all transaction fee that all transaction fees uh, that go to the sequencer, all the profits will be used for retroactive public goods funding. So that is a credible source of funding. Um, and in fact, that is something that should indeed like persist and be, be you know, something that, uh, uh, how do I say this? Um, Rollups in general, as any rollup that we contribute to, I mean, we'll, we'll never, we won't, we won't know for sure what the future holds, but they should fund public goods. And so I'm hopeful that if we build, you know, good rollups, we make it easy to deploy them so that there's low switching costs, you know, we do everything we can, then it will maximize the, you know, amount of retroactive public goods funding that can be credibly committed to, you know, building up the protocol. So anyway, long-winded yeah. way to say, we love retroactive public goods funding and all the profits will go to, to that. Yeah. It, it really feels like there can be like, it's people can really attempt to do this in many different ways. Right. And the, uh, the different pieces of it can be plug and play of how the voting is done on one, uh, you know, what projects have been valuable or where the funding is coming from. And, uh, just just every part of it. Another thing I was curious about to, to talk about was this um, something you talked about, Vitalik, of uh, conformism and, you know... Uh, Pro-socialness and conformism, the two axes. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um, maybe the, the meta point, the meta question is, uh, there many of the kind of decision-making mechanisms in Ethereum are kind of tending towards DAOs and you know, discussion in a public forum to decide how to proceed with something. And um, I guess what you're saying is that these, which is something that makes sense, is that they, they're conformist, right? It's hard to make mm -hmm. decisions that that are controversial with many right, like decision makers involved. Yeah, like basically it's hard to make any governance that is not either conformist or exclusionary, right? If it's centralized, then it's exclusionary and like whoever the guy at the center is can make plenty of uh, controversial decisions as we've learned uh, many times in, uh, in history. But uh, if it's, uh, you know, but but no one else can. Um, and if it's uh, decentralized, then uh, you know, like ba basically, like the decisions that get made are just going to be decisions that have some appeal to the entire group. And so, in either of those cases, there isn't really yeah, much room for things that come from outside the system, but then end up uh, being successful uh, to kind of succeed and prosper, right? And in the realm of private goods, right, like this is the uh, thing that markets are so wonderful at, right? Anyone can just start a company and it doesn't matter how many people believe or disbelieve in you at the, at, at the beginning, as long as you find enough people who believe in you that there will, um, that there's enough resources that you can actually get your, uh, get your thing off the ground and running. Um, and you know, if uh, you end up succeeding, then uh, whoever was right actually, uh, Ends up uh, ends up prospering, right? So it's uh, an incentive not to target kind of conformity in the present. It's an incentive to create something that will be recognized as valuable in the future. Now, I mean, of course, this is not perfect, and there's definitely kind of public delusions that can persist for decades or even centuries. And uh, retroactive anything is not necessarily going to capture that, but it's still like uh, a significant improvement over the uh, status quo, right? Um, so, 
the like, and I think this is even a a larger point that can go beyond uh, public goods funding, right? Like even like think about social media, for example, right? Like there's uh, very little incentive or a kind of pressure in social media to say things that will continue to make sense two years from now. And you know the pressure is to just say things that like give you you know the war the warm and fuzzy rah-rahs among your among your peer group like uh in the moment and if it turns out that your your mm-hmm. peer group in the moment is like completely wrong a year from now then um you know you don't well there actually isn't that all that much accountability and and i think you know we've been seeing the yeah, covid situation happen um over the course of the last like year and a half and one of the fascinating things about the covid situation is that it just it's so effective at showing these dynamics happen in real time, right? Like normally when, you know, some of one of these professional political blabbers makes a blab, like you don't actually know that they blabbed something dumb until like five or 10 years in the future. And by then everyone forgets, but here for just this one brief moment, like, you know, you have professional blabbers make a blab and they get proven wrong within three weeks. And so like we, like sometimes it's three weeks, sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's an entire year. Um, But, um, you know, you can see how the, like the dynamic works, right? And there's, uh, you know, plenty of uh, kind of like predictions that got made both by, uh, like uh, mainstream public health authorities and by kind of various tribes that each that, that each claim that they're better than the mainstream public health authorities. And we both see how, and we see how all of them kind of fall flat on their face uh, very publicly in uh, a lot of situations. Um, so like, I think there is this kind of like broader question even going beyond crypto and going beyond retroactive public goods funding specifically of, um, you know, can we, uh, create systems that give incentives to um or not not even necessarily thinking thinking about it in terms of incentives but even like create selection pressures that amplify things that are not just um like attractive to people at that particular point in time but things that actually do uh, extend the test of time and that don't like look ridiculous so one or two at least one or two years in the future hope um hopefully five or ten years in the future here, here. Um, okay, so I, this actually interestingly relates to what you were saying before, Sina, about um, the some people just want to work on things that are good for humanity, and then you know there's some people who want to like make profits, and like these aren't always the same things, and this is a problem because you can't rely on just people you know wanting to do the right thing. I think that this is why my new favorite thing is that what we are all working on is a social network. We are working on building a new way to kind of bring signal to one thing and reduce the signal of another thing. And, you know, give money to one person that is actually producing uh, value and not to another, right? So this is all about like, that the fact that there's a difference between doing something that you think is going to be impactful and good and doing something that you think is going to be profitable, the fact that those are different things is literally the sickness of our collective society and our social network. That's the bug. That's what we need to bring into alignment. And so just like I'm a news reporter that's saying, oh, COVID's not a problem. And then it blows up, you know, that is the same issue where you need to be in alignment with what is actually the long-term correct thing. You want to amplify the good signals and reduce the bad ones. People spend too much time on their social media. They spend more time than they want to. That's a, that's a misalignment, right? All of these things, we need to work on them. Well, I, I feel like some of these things are just very deeply embedded into human nature or maybe just growing up in in like the waters of our culture they they kind of seep in very deeply but um like the i mean it it really feels like it comes back to you know being self-centered and wanting to you know not feeling secure in the world wanting to accumulate enough resources so you can you can survive or uh I feel like it's those individual impulses that you put together into a system of people that result in these outcomes. It feels like 
there is a cultural war and market design that needs to happen. And maybe the market design, we can use the markets to fight the cultural war. Like, I really do think that there are many frontiers of problems um, and we have to choose which ones are, are, you know, which ones come first. So I do think that, that something as simple as promoting open source software over closed source software like I think that that is a big one that will go a long way. And things like what Vitalik said, like I think literally like the, the yeah, Vitalik, I'm, I'm, your, your ideas around putting, uh, what, what exactly is the mechanism for uh, incentivizing that long-term social media posting? Um, I mean, theoretically, you could just like do something literally similar to retroactive public goods funding, right? Like you could give people karma for their posts two years in the future. Um. <laughs> hmm. That would be very, very interesting because I feel like we also have very short memories, right? We literally forget what happened. But if baked into the system, it makes, you know, it's like how Google Photos shows you like two years ago on this day, this is what you did. You know, the system is reminding you to, to think about the past. And if that is baked into the dopamine hits that the social media system is giving you, like how, how what you said two years ago has aged, that would be very interesting. Maybe let's just think through the ramifications of that. What would happen if Twitter, what would that even look like if Twitter was going to reward you know, in the future, reward good posts today. Interesting. Um, hmm. I guess one simple option is um, when you, uh, like, Twitter would just sometimes show you posts that people made two years ago, and, you know, it could give you an up and upvote and a downvote button. And, um, you know, when you like a post, then uh, two or someone else's tweet, then you know, like two years from now, um, we'll see if your likes kind of correctly predicted the upvotes and downvotes. And, uh, you know, if they, yeah, if they did, then uh, like your likes become more powerful or something. I like that's one way to do a prediction market. Um, I, yeah. Hmm. It needs to uh, think more about this. I think there's also the question of like, is this uh, is there going to an intention of making an absolute score, or is it a kind of community by community thing, um, or that kind of emerges out of graph structure somehow? I don't know. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Another idea that came to mind was if mm -hmm. the if, if your reputation on the site, like how prominently you feature and are recommended as an account to follow for other people is a function of, you know, how many, how many likes and retreats you've gotten, but these likes, um, you know, the more time has passed between that, the more value they have. Right. So they start mm -hmm. out being a very thin, lightweight, like if you get it five minutes after you post it, but if you get it two years down the line, it's worth way more. Mm -hmm. hmm. People would abuse that in all sorts of ways as well. Y yes. As uh, we know from our discussions about collusion resistance. Hmm. Have you seen any recent social media experiments that you're excited about? Let's see. So I know that there's like multiple projects that are interested in this like person token thing. And this is something that I view with a, a combination of excitement and apprehension. Um, so I think like BitCloud is the most public one of this example, but there's also like they're far from the only one. There's plenty of others that are trying to do person tokens of uh, various kinds. Um, I guess the excitement comes from like it is kind of a retroactive thing where if you, um, you know, buy into a rising star and then they end up, you know, becoming a risen star, then uh, that's, uh, you know, you, you get a reward out of that. And by buying into a rising star, you are in turn helping to kind of push their token price up that hel and, and helps more people see them. The worry that, that I have with these schemes in their current form is that I think, uh, the average um, social media blabber does not realize the extent of the moral responsibility that they're acquiring when they yeah, basically yeah, 
you know, start a profile and open up a yeah, personal token that anyone can buy into, right? Like, do, like, do, are people going to understand that they're basically creating this crowd of fans that's buying into like basically their future and that's expecting them to continue, you know, pumping up con uh, pumping out content on this platform and working hard to improve themselves within the context of this platform or within the context of some other platform that honors project tokens. And they might get really angry if you just decide, get bored and decide to go do something else. Like these are things that I think there hasn't even been enough time. Like there hasn't been enough time yet for like this full cycle of um, you know excitement and disappointments to happen and so we don't really yeah, understand the social dynamics of this sort of thing so i am um, you know i in general like i um, you know I, I believe in experiments and i also hope that the experiments don't grow too quickly before a kind of one full round of um, at least one full round of boom and bust can happen uh, to see yeah, you know how they actually work both in good times and bad times um, but so I uh, yeah, I guess welcome the existence of uh, different models, but we'll see. Yeah, it's like the vitriol that token projects get when the price goes in, up and down, targeted yep, yep, at yep. an individual. Totally sounds terrifying. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people have that today, right? Like influencers or athletes, or you know. Um, Right, but like you don't have, um, you know, large numbers of people buying. I don't know what's the name of an athlete. Um, right. Name an athlete. Um, okay, coins. you don't have. Okay, you don't have people who have LeBron coins. Yeah, sure. Um. Right, <sighs> it's it's a totally different ball game if it's tradable twenty four seven. Yeah, and then the other fun thing is like if it's tradable twenty four seven, and then well, let's say LeBron makes a comment on some political issue, and you get to see in real time how his comments on political issues affect his price. And is that going to just train LeBron to have political opinions that pushes tokens up? I yeah, I don't know. Like uh, such such things require time to figure out the consequences. I one one funny thing that I think uh, we are moving towards, and I don't know if we like really think about it too much, is just the uh, mutability or the the concept of identity not being tied to a person is just becoming more and more visceral mm -hmm. as time goes on. Like it become it's like more and more a brand of LeBron. Like LeBron coin is not investing in LeBron James's well-being you know what I mean it's it's investing in a particular identity of like all-star basketball player you know funny guy on video sometimes you know so it is it we're already getting to this point and and then then the the like the movement into like avatar you know mm -hmm. uh influencers and whatnot it's like really creating that that uh uh like very visceral and very real thing that is like, oh yeah, all of our identities are kind of made up and we're just kind of playing different roles at different times. Well, TIL, what sport LeBron is part of? Um, <laughs> that's, uh, no, no, no. The, the pseudonymity and the kind of like multiple identity thing is uh, definitely yeah, very interesting. And I definitely expect it to like keep growing over time. I mean, I think it's uh, grown a lot yeah, yeah, just within the crypto space and uh, outside the crypto space as well already, right? And I think uh, people are going to realize more and more that having like one face attached to everything they do, like you can often be even more a liability than it is an asset. Um, one other fascinating thing that might change things is um, how is what zero knowledge proofs will do. Like, could zero knowledge proofs make reputation portable without revealing the source of the reputation? That would be so cool. And and if you if you do some like bad thing, then your your reputation can be reduced from the like global scale, I guess, or like mm -hmm. global from a community's perspective, at least. We don't want to like, right, right. judge people's lives objectively. Yeah, no, like, uh, Barry Whitehead did uh, come up with a yeah, model that allows negative reputation while still preserving privacy, which is uh, fascinating. 
Which, which one is that? I don't know if I'm familiar it's with it. It's an ETH research post somewhere. I forget the name. And isn't everything in ETH research somewhere that we forget the name of? That, that seems like a very, very powerful idea because it kind of allows people to shapeshift and to take on popular opinions, right? It almost, it's a, it's a force against the conformism that we were talking about because you can kind of like, disappear here and appear in another skin and just say, you know, say something that the crowd doesn't believe with all of the reputation behind you. Fascinating. It is. I mean, it's also happening on crypto Twitter today where like some of these Anons say things that the known people don't say, right? Like they, they Mm -hmm. just express their full opinions because they're not afraid. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get inverse bra. So, you know, there's a mix. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can we can close it here. Sounds good. Yeah. Yay! Thank you.